The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. And by 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. This is session 221. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. My daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Well, I hope everyone is having a great week. We have a terrific show for you today about an often misunderstood topic, localized water infrastructure. Melissa Kelly of uh, the University of California's Irvine School of Law's Center for Land, Environment, and Natural Resources, or CLEANER, and Caroline Cook of Water Now Alliance come on to provide our feature interview, and they do a fantastic job of explaining what localized water infrastructure is, what some barriers to adoption are, and how we can overcome those barriers. It's a great interview, and I'm sure, like me, you will learn a lot. But well, we always start start our show with a great thank you to our awesome sponsors, uh, and the sponsors of the Water Values Podcast are Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black and Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, and Three Seventy Four Water. That is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, thought leadership, and education by sponsoring the podcast. And thank you all. Greatly appreciate your support, sponsors. Uh, And I'd like for you, the listener, to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of those sponsors, please thank your boss or your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And, oh, by the way, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, before we head on to our interview with Melissa and Caroline, let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. Take it away, guys. Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap segment. How are you? Pretty good, Dave. Pretty good. Uh, end of the quarter, last day. Last day, that yeah. As as we as we sit here today, the Mariners' magic number for the playoffs to end their playoff drought is one. And I'm sure by the time uh, this goes uh, out to the public, uh, the Mariners will have made their first postseason in 21 years. So it's uh, it's going to be a good weekend, I think. It's been a long time since uh, the unit and Ken Griffey, huh? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I'm not a Red Sox fan, but I have been a big Red Sox fan recently because they uh, they have helped reduce that magic number by beating the Orioles. So. 
Yeah, my uh, son went to a game yesterday. I think they were just giving away free tickets. So. <laughs> Good deal. Well, uh, you know, last time when we got together, we talked about a uh, the 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 Southwest Corix uh, tie up. And uh, I think that you have identified a, a, or are tracking a, a large number of M&A deals that are starting to arise. Is that, am I, am I getting that, that information correctly? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I mean, maybe in the spirit of the hurricane season, uh, they're countervailing winds that we're seeing. Um, we are seeing some deal activity. Like you mentioned the Southwest Corex deal, which is really on the utility acquisition side in the U.S., but also, we've seen uh, TetraTech, large engineering company based out of California, and a Canadian company, WSP Global, getting seemingly getting into a bidding war for an engineering firm in the UK, which is interesting. But I'd say, so we're seeing some big deals, right, like that. And then at the same time, I've just reviewed our quarterly analysis of M&A across the global water sector. And the numbers are generally way down. So to put it in context, I think we recorded 511 water-related deals last year. This year, we're only at 193 so far, and that's all in. So it's pretty slow. Companies are getting, they're slowing down, should I say, I think probably because of all the uncertainty. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the, the, the TetraTech deal in the UK. Uh, any thoughts about why that's why that bidding war is going on? Well, one, I think it's really interesting, and we're going through some analysis now. One, it, it would be TetraTech's large deal. WSP had reached an agreement, actually, with RSP. Sorry for all the similar names, but um, they had reached a deal for about $640 million, and Tetratech just came in at the last minute with a $691 million offer, which was quickly agreed to by RSP in the UK. And we're digging it. It, it seems to be a good match. Tetratech has been buying some smaller deals. Like I said, it's its largest deal to date. WSP has been really aggressive in buying Golder last year. They just bought John Wood's uh, E&I business, which includes water. But the point being is, I, I guess we're trying to figure out, do exchange rates have anything to do with this? The U.S. dollar is really strong right now. I mean, particularly compared to the euro, but also the pound. And so does this give an advantage to U.S. companies if they're looking to uh, go further afield for acquisitions over the next 6 to 12 months? Yeah. And and you mentioned valuations are down. Um, do you, what, what, what do... I don't want to call them reduced valuation or deflated valuations, but what what do the kind of the, the the trend in valuations right now? What's that say for for where the future of these M and A deals is going? Yeah, I think we're still sort of uh, I don't know if you want to call it the bottom, but it's pretty turbulent or uncertain right now. But over the next six months, we're starting to see that the valuations are coming down from what companies were even asking for six months ago. And so now what we expect is, you know, if things sort of play out as, as anticipated, there are going to be some companies that are seemingly fine from a capital resource point of view. And they're going to be probably a significant number of wounded lambs, as we call them out there, that are going to need some, need some cash um, or just need to sort of find a way out of the mess. Um, the numbers, you know, when we look at California tax receipts and you start looking and that's on all fronts, that's just 
corporate tax receipts, residential tax receipts, they're down for two months straight. And so if that's a bellwether of things to come, it's not going to not gonna look good. And it might be time for some uh, well-resourced firms to come in and, and roll up some still valuable assets. Right, right. Yeah, that, well, that always happens once, you know, when, when the economic uh, headwinds, when you, when you encounter those, uh, a lot of times folks figure it's a good time to, to get out or to sell the business. So Yeah, it's almost counter-cyclical, uh, you know, at the end of the day. So, But I think it's still going to take a little bit of time. But I think overall, M&A numbers are kind of mimicking the broader economy right now. Yeah. Uh, any other deals that are kind of your... your tracking. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to have some research coming out pretty soon, which I think is pretty interesting. Danaher. The, Danaher is, by our measure, the third largest water uh, company in our top 50 companies in water uh, rankings and just behind now Veolia and Xylem. But Danaher is spinning off its water business. And it's a really interesting story how Danaher has evolved over time, very acquisitive, uh, founded in the mid mid eighties, and they got into buying manufacturing assets, and then they started buying water. They bought Hawk in the late nineteen nineties, and really grew that business to what is now about two point seven billion dollars. But at the same time, they were acquiring life sciences and diagnostics companies. So I think when you look at the Danaher pie, they look at it particularly as you can imagine over the last two years, really a biosciences company and sort of hard to look at that little slice of water, which makes up 16% of their business and growing at about a 3 to 4% compound annual growth rate versus the life sciences business, which is growing at probably 20 plus, around 20%. So it's um, they're spinning it off. And so it'll be interesting to see what ha- that happens, uh, given what I would say ultimately are pretty good tailwinds for the water sector based on industrial need, municipal needs, things we've talked about in the past, but also all this infrastructure funding going into the market. Um, there are some real opportunities out there. Yeah. Well, Reese, it was great talking with you again. Uh, as always, terrific information, great market intelligence. And uh, until next time, thanks so much for coming on. All right, Dave. Uh, good luck in the playoffs. And <laughs> we will uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, you bet. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Now it's on to our featured guests, Melissa Kelly and Caroline Cook, who provide a riveting discussion on localized water infrastructure. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Melissa and Caroline, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. It is great to have you both on today. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, great. Yeah, great to great to be here. Awesome. Uh, so before we jump into our discussion today, I would like to to find out a little about your backgrounds and how you came to the water sector uh, and kind of you can, you know, tell us a little about a, not only your background, but what you're doing now. So, Melissa, let's start with you. Let's let's uh, let, let's hear your backstory on how you came to the water sector. Sure. So my experience in the water sector actually comes from my time in the nonprofit world. Um, so I was the staff attorney at Los Angeles Waterkeeper, where I focused on Clean Water Act litigation, which is how Caroline and I met, um, as well as water supply policy. Um, and then from there, I 
started my current position with UC Irvine's um, Center for Land Environment and Natural Resources, or CLEANER. And so my focus is much broader now. Um, our center promotes innovative research and catalyzes concrete policy action in environmental and land use law. And our core programming is a workshop roundtable series, and that involves interdisciplinary policy-oriented research and stakeholder engagement activities that are directed towards tangible outcomes in environmental policy. So we publish reports, policy documents that are intended to frame debates, develop solutions, and issue recommendations. Well, that sounds like a fascinating, uh, uh, a fascinating job. I mean, what are, what are, can you, before Caroline, we'll get to you in just a moment, but I'm curious, like, uh, what are some of the recent reports that you've been able to do and, and, and discussions you've been able to facilitate? Sure. So like I was saying, it's, it's broad. I lean on our faculty. So I co-direct with our faculty director, um, Alex Camacho and his expertise is species and habitat conservation. So we've had a number of discussions on the Federal Endangered Species Act and uh, changes that we recommend um, for conservation purposes for that law. Um, we've partnered with groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists and looked at the use of scientific research in federal environmental policy. And then, of course, with my background in water, We've done this roundtable that's the impetus for our conversation today with Water Now Alliance. Um, and I'm also doing one on uh, water budgets. So it's pretty broad. Yeah, sounds like it. So, uh, Caroline, thank you for being patient. Uh, I would love to hear your backstory on how you got uh, into the water sector. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always fascinating for me to hear about Melissa's work as well. Um, so, my, my water backstory also uh, begins in the Clean Water Act realm, as Melissa mentioned. Um, I worked for about 10 years um, litigating in Clean Water Act and other California um, water law issues um, up and down the state. And uh, about four years ago, joined Water Now um, to work on uh, the policy side um, shifting away from uh, litigation. Um, and so Water Now is a network of local elected appointed decision makers uh, who are working to advance sustainable, affordable, equitable, and climate resilient water solutions for their communities. Um, and I really enjoyed over the last four years working with our members um, across 43 states. I think we're about 700 strong uh, currently, although that changes with elections, of course, um, and really focusing in on today's topic uh, of localized infrastructure, which we can definitely talk more about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very so. You mentioned the localized water infrastructure. What are some of the other policy initiatives that you're overseeing there at, at Water Now Alliance? We've been we've been working a lot on uh, the recent influx of federal funds and making sure that. Uh, those dollars go to the communities that need them the most uh, for these sustainable options that, that WaterNow um, focuses on. Um, we're also working on helping community groups and their local water systems uh, build stronger trust-based relationships. So this is a project that we have uh, together with the River Network to provide 
support and guidance for partnerships uh, between community groups and their water systems to uh, build trust, uh, solidify relationships as they work towards a specific project or program uh, that both groups in that partnership would like to see. All right. Fantastic. So let, let's jump back to what you identified, Caroline, is the, um, the, the localized water infrastructure. And I guess my first question is, what, what is localized water infrastructure? Can you kind of provide a baseline for us? Sure, I can do that for us. So, I mean, if we, I guess if we take a step back and sort of look at where we are, our water systems are facing ever-increasing stressors, right? You can't look at the news today and not see something about the challenges we're facing, whether it's urban flooding, which is expected to increase by 45% by the end of the century, or the historic drought that we're experiencing out here in the Southwest. Um, and so communities all over the nation are looking for ways to build resiliency to climate change, and that's where localized water infrastructure comes in. And so when we say that, we mean distributed systems that are located either at or near the point of use, and they offer integrated, equitable, and adaptive solutions for communities that are looking to build this resiliency by supplementing and extending the life of conventional centralized water infrastructure. And so we group localized water infrastructure into four sort of broad categories, um, water use efficiency, reuse and other alternative non-potable sources, green infrastructure, and privately owned lateral line replacements. Yeah. So, uh, Melissa, can you provide like an example for each of those so that we can, you know, the listener can kind of picture it in their mind? Because I think so many of us are conditioned to large centralized systems that it it's really hard to kind of exactly. get, get it in your mind's eye what LWI is. Yeah, so there are communities that are really leading the way on these strategies, and Caroline can actually go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, as Melissa mentioned, we're really seeing a growing number of utilities that are turning to these localized options. So over the past 20 years, for example, the Southern Nevada Water Authority has financed its turf replacement incentive program, a form of localized infrastructure, um, to the tune of $260 million. Um, and so through these investments in these decentralized strategies of the turf replacements, um, they have converted over 4,600 acres of turf to water-wise landscaping um, and saved nearly 460,000 acre feet of water. And that 4,600 acres represents about 40% of the non-functional turf in Southern Nevada's service area. And the water savings is 160,000 acre feet or so more than the whole of the Nevada has the right to use per year. Wow. Um, and so in another example where Southern Nevada uses localized infrastructure as a source of supply um, in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District uses uh, decentralized or distributed green infrastructure, bioswales, permeable pavement, um, rain gardens, um, you know, all of those nature-based systems that uh, I think is a, becoming more familiar um, to meet their challenges around having too much water. Um, so MMSD really is trying to take a green first approach with a goal to have 
740 million gallons of stormwater per storm captured with green infrastructure. Um, and in comparison, their deep tunnel system captures 520 gallons of stormwater per storm. And maybe just one other example on the uh, water quality side, um, Central Arkansas Water uses a decentralized approach to protecting their watershed where their drinking water comes from um, by leveraging watershed protection fee revenues to purchase land in the watershed and protect it with conservation easements. So into, as of 2017, Central Arkansas had purchased roughly 2,000 acres of property uh, with an additional uh, nearly 300 acres under conservation easements, which was almost double its initial goal. So they have, as of uh, 2020, an additional goal to uh, conserve 4,500 acres and protecting about 45% of the watershed as conserved forest land. So there's just, those are just a few examples of, of what we mean by localized water infrastructure. Yeah, I, I, and I really like that you selected a couple of examples in geographically diverse areas, right? From the Southwest, from the upper Midwest, and uh, uh, kind of the, the, the Southeast. It's really a one water type of idea, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. This is definitely a one water strategy um, that can meet drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater challenges. Um, absolutely. And there there are examples across that one water spectrum. Um, I think you had an episode recently about on-site water reuse, um, which can either take the form of, of gray water systems or advanced systems that are, you know, taking black water and, and making it usable on site. So that would be another example of a localized strategy um, providing those one water benefits. Awesome. Awesome. And so, you know, I also mentioned earlier that so many of us are used to these centralized water systems, you know, what incentive or how, how do you build support for localized water infrastructure? I mean, what, where, where does the incentive come in to invest in those programs? Um, yeah, so it really is all about incentivizing uh, property owners to implement these strategies. And that often takes the form of utility rebates or grants or other incentives on bill credits, those types of um, programs that encourage private property owners to change out their turf or replace their toilet or put in that gray water system. Um, at Water Now, we often say, you know, people don't really have a preference on what their toilet looks like. <laughs> they just want it to work properly. And, um, you know, if the utility is incentivizing them to use a, a low flow toilet option, then the benefit accrues to the system overall, while the, the property owner is still having a functioning <laughs> wastewater system in their house. So, those those utility incentives are key to implementing these localized strategies. And how how does the utility build the case that that investing in localized water infrastructure and establishing these localized water infrastructure programs is the right thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. So backing up a little bit in urban settings, you know, water and infrastructure as we've been talking about needs to perform three basic functions. 
you know, to provide safe, clean, and reliable drinking water, to move that wastewater away from homes and businesses and treat it properly and safely reclaim it or discharge it, and to manage stormwater to limit flooding and related damages and, again, assure that it's safely reclaimed or discharged without harm to the public health or water bodies. So the centralized options that, you know, we're all most familiar with can perform these functions um, and have been for the past 150 years. Um, but as we see with the examples that I've mentioned, localized infrastructure can serve these same functions um, by providing water supply, protecting water quality, and managing stormwater. So to build the case to add these options on to your, your water infrastructure portfolio is these options really supplement and extend the life of these conventional options. They can help you defer expanding reservoirs or pipelines um, and having avoided costs for those, you know, very expensive projects. Um, they're also more integrated and equitable and adaptive um, and flexible when compared to centralized options. So they can really build resilience and sustainability into our water systems. Um, and distributed strategies really can provide multiple community benefits that I'll let Melissa tell you about that conventional options um, don't always offer. Sure. So some of those community co-benefits are ones that advance equity and affordability. Um, they can include creation of local jobs, for instance, um, improved public health. Um, I can give you a couple examples. Um, so if you, let's see, I guess when we're talking about equity and affordability, right? If you think of strategies like water use efficiency, distributed green infrastructure, on-site reuse, they represent opportunities to cite needed improvements in the communities that disproportionately bear the impacts of combined sewer overflows, right? Polluted urban runoff, contaminated drinking water, right? You name it. Um, and these communities are often the most in need of the co-benefits that I mentioned, such as urban greening, um, the well-paying jobs that are permanent, uh, reduced heat island effect, right? And then because these localized strategies just by their nature are distributed across the community, there's the opportunity to ensure the just distribution of costs and benefits among uh, water utilities stakeholders. Um, so we see examples of this in Philadelphia, for instance. Um, Philadelphia Water Department has a green infrastructure program. They looked back at their program after five years of implementation, and it had supported over 900 new jobs. Um, it was a total of 30 million in employee compensation over that five years. Um, and they looked back again after 10 years of implementation and there were up to 34,000 green infrastructure workers across Pennsylvania. And over half of those workers were earning at least $15 an hour. And that was even without a high school diploma or equivalent. Um, another example is one Caroline actually already mentioned, it was the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District and their widespread implementation of green infrastructure. That district compared the potential capture from green infrastructure, uh, potential capture of stormwater, and they compared it to the cost of construction of storage to capture that same volume. 
And they estimated that the district was saving $44 million in infrastructure costs. Um, and so that's the avoided cost that Caroline had also mentioned as a benefit of these localized water infrastructure strategies. Um, Madison, Wisconsin has also seen that benefit. That city completed the nation's first citywide lead service line replacement program back in 2011. And they estimated that by replacing those service lines rather than using ongoing chemical treatment, seven years out, um, they had saved 2.5 million. Um, so these additional benefits from localized water infrastructure are significant. Yeah, sounds like now I really like the way you've 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 framed it, saying that the localized water infrastructure it's it's not a replacement; it's a supplement to the bigger system. So I mean, I think that's a barrier that some folks need to to, to have had in understanding what localized water infrastructure is. It's it's not a replacement for the centralized system; it supplements the the existing system. Is my understanding? Absolutely. Of that yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of I mean, I guess if you look at all of the benefits we just listed, you would think that this is that these types of strategies would have been adopted much more broadly than they are. But there are barriers, like you mentioned, that are sort of either misconceptions or just the way um, people perceive traditional centralized infrastructure as the way to go, that there isn't this sort of innovative thinking towards these localized strategies. Yeah. Well, since you've opened the door, what what are some of the other barriers that have uh, prevented more broad application of uh, localized water infrastructure? Yes. So that's actually the question that we were asking when we decided to develop um, a workshop roundtable around this issue. Uh, So Cleaner with Water Now Alliance, we conducted research to identify what these barriers might be. And so we found that there are a number of structural financing, institutional and legal and policy barriers and constraints. And then, like I mentioned, perceptions about these constraints that can unnecessarily limit flexibility and opportunity to move towards these types of strategies that we've been discussing. And so we convened a group of water policy experts, including leaders at the forefront of implementing these strategies Um, for a dialogue around community successes, lessons learned, and then the solutions that we needed to advance full-scale adoption of localized water infrastructure. Um, And then out of this, we published a report. um, It's called Tap into Resilience Pathways for Localized Water Infrastructure. Um, We published this last year, and it goes through these financial, institutional, legal, and policy barriers that exist Um, So there are a number of them that we go through in the report, but I can give you a couple examples here. Um, So in terms of misconceptions, um, there are misconceptions regarding limitations on the use of bonds uh, to finance projects on private property because that's outside municipal or utility ownership and control. Um, There's also the traditional utility business model that can be at odds with reduced water usage that would result from water saving strategies. Um, and that's because water rates aren't decoupled from revenue in a lot of cases. And then there could be legal and policy barriers and those can be in the form of existing regulations um, that might directly prohibit or serve as disincentives to implementation of LWI. Um, or it can even just be the absence of regulations, policies, um, and this can indirectly limit implementation because it leaves localized water infrastructure out of the conversation completely. Um, And there's just 
no identification of those types of strategies as ways to meet legal and regulatory requirements. Terrific. So you, so the, this tap into resilience report, I, it, I, I assume it's going to provide some concrete examples on, on, uh, for example, the, the municipal bond usage and the alternative business models and things like that, that you, you kind of walked us through. Yes. Caroline can definitely touch on sort of how we, um, how we overcome those barriers. Yeah. So, so Caroline, let your tag, you're it. So how do we? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I'm, I'm here with the solutions. Um, <laughs> so yeah, during the round table, we identified the barriers that we were also I, I able to identify a number of ways to overcome those barriers. Um, and have identified over two dozen practical action items um, for stakeholders um, across municipal government, state government, federal government, as well as um, NGO community and the academic community. Um, and some of the some of the pathways exist already, which I'll talk about. And um, some re- do require some policy changes that are in the works. Um, but for example, on the municipal bond question, it is already possible for utilities and local governments to use the proceeds from municipal bonds to pay for uh, localized strategies, consumer incentives and rebates that we talked about, um, just as they would for conventional infrastructure. So this is what Southern Nevada uh, Water Authority does, they bond finance their turf replacement incentives. Um, they use an accounting approach, which is also a, another perceived barrier, but one that can be overcome currently under current rules. Um, they use an accounting approach that requires obtaining some ownership or control interest, um, which they do through a conservation easement. Um, But in contrast, there's an alternative accounting approach that Seattle Public Utility uh, uses to account for their incentives in uh, residential green infrastructure incentives for rain gardens that doesn't require obtaining any ownership or control interest over folks' front lawns. Um, That's called regulated operations. It's a, a very wonky name, but it's really a game-changing accounting approach because it eliminates that that additional need to have that conservation easement um, or or contract over a private property, which is not very appealing to utility or or private property owners. Um, so there is a way around that barrier as well. Terrific. I mean, it sounds sounds like the the tap into resilience report really lays out a lot of these. Uh, strategies to to overcome these barriers. Um, do you have some tips for some, you know, immediate actions that water managers can take to to get some projects, you know, going? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Melissa, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, I was just going to jump in here because you know um, there are. I think as Carolyn actually already mentioned, right, we have about two dozen very practical, achievable action items that we've identified in our report. And so some of them, um, we talked about the legal and policy barriers, right? And 
to overcome some of those, it's as simple as just leveraging existing regulatory requirements. Um, so for example, if you take your municipal stormwater permits, um, you can simply identify types of localized water infrastructure as authorized best management practices, and that itself would create an incentive to implement localized water strategies. Um, or if we're looking at something that utilities can do immediately, they can invest in tools and technologies that harness real-time data um, that would inform improved rate modeling and decision-making. Um, and so that's something utilities can do working with technology and university partners. Um, and I'm sure Caroline has some immediate actions that can be taken in the financing sector. Yeah, absolutely. So on the on the financing side, it really is um, an institutional thinking shift to view these decentralized options as infrastructure, as capital investments. Um, most public finance statutes that govern, you know, what local governments and utilities can use municipal bond dollars for are already flexible enough to allow bond financing for these uh, strategies. It's more of having conversation with your bond council and your, your local CFO to explain all of the water management and other multiple benefits of these strategies as long-term investments um, that are properly uh, paid for in the long-term from a financing perspective. So though we're, we're working on, on having those conversations um, across the water sector. And then uh, on the, the policy side, one thing that you know we're also working on that does require a bit of a change to the federal tax code. Um, currently, the tax code doesn't exempt incentives customers receive from water utilities from taxable income the same way it does for energy rebates. So this does create a bit of a, a tax disincentive for those customers to participate in a, a rebate program. And as I mentioned, we're, we're working on getting that changed. Um, but at the federal level, on the plus side, California is on the verge of exempting incentives for turf changeouts from taxable income. So we do hope to see more changes like that into in the future. Well, that's, that's terrific. It, it sounds like you guys have been very busy. I'm, I have learned so much from speaking with you today. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me about localized water infrastructure because I've, I've learned a lot. Um, but before we, before we uh, say goodbye, could you, do you have a leave behind message that you'd like to, to depart or leave with our listeners before, uh, before our time's up? Caroline, I'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. So if you would like to continue learning about localized water strategies and how to accelerate your investments in these sustainable options, I encourage you to reach out to WaterNow. And our website is easy. It's waternow.org. Awesome. Melissa, do you have a leave behind? Yes. Um, and so if I guess if any of your listeners listeners are looking for university partners in developing maybe some of these decision support tools or resources um, that our report mentions, you can reach out to Cleaner. And our website, you can find us through UC Irvine Law School's website, which is law.uci.edu. And then it's slash centers slash cleaner, our acronym. Um, and yeah, I hope to be hearing from 
from yeah people looking to collaborate. Yeah, terrific. And for those of you listening at home, uh, if you didn't catch those URLs, we will put them on the show notes for this site. So just navigate to the uh, show notes and you can find it. Uh, or you can just uh, Google Water Now Alliance or uh, the Cleaner Program and you will uh, you will land on your landing pages. So Caroline and Melissa, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You were terrific and I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dave. Enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Great job by Melissa and Caroline. They were terrific and provided concrete examples of localized water infrastructure from various regions of the various regions of the country and I'm sure you now have a much better idea as did I about what localized water infrastructure is and I think we're going to see a lot more of local water localized water infrastructure in our collective futures. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about that interview. Please let me check out the show notes for the page for links and information on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. That's our homepage on Bluefield Research's website. Again, Bluefield and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield provides the water values with a home on the web. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2022 season include Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, and 374 Water. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.